Uh, we're going to kind of be in a, uh, a number of places in the scripture this morning. So I'm actually going to have you turn to Matthew 28, verse 19. We're going to get there in a minute. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and just slip your hand up and Tom will uh, bring you a Bible. Tom's very disappointed in me because I wore a black shirt. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, he will bring you a Bible uh, to, uh, <laughs> he'll bring you a Bible if you don't have one. As always, we're using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, a couple weeks ago, I preached at my, the church I grew up in in California, and I was using the CSB, and I made my lame joke that we call it the Coastal Sunshine Bible. And then I never actually said the real name, so people were like, that's what they thought the real name is. But it actually is Christian Standard Bible. So if you don't have a printed copy, you're free to grab one. They're free on the back table for you. Um, and then you also can go on like version or whatever to, to follow along. Before we get any further, let's just pray and ask God to help us as we look into the scripture. I ask, Lord, that you would just be, um, that, that your presence which is here, would be manifest and evident to us that we would see you in your word. That we would, because of this morning, know you and love you and trust you and be willing to follow you wherever you lead. We ask that you, because of this morning, would be more receive more evident glory from us and from this church and that our church would be rooted and grounded in love for you and for one another. And I just ask you to help me and if there's anything that I don't need to say that's in my notes that you would edit me out and if there's anything I do need to say that's not in there that you would add it in. Your spirit would have freedom to speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Is there a God and do you believe in him? This is kind of a basic question. Yes, thank you. Feedback, I like it already. We're on a good track. There, there are a number of ways you can answer this question. There are a number of ways people historically and people today answer this question. One way to answer it is there is no God. There's no God. That, that, belie- that is called atheism. Someone who's an atheist believes that there is no God. They're very, very convinced there's no God. Uh, this is actually um, a very, very uh, minority position. Like, very few people in the history of the world and very few people even today um, hold to this belief that there is no God. It, sometimes people may want to see themselves as sort of an intellectual elite or really, really, they want to see, them, like the, see themselves as really smart or they have some sort of special knowledge that other people don't have. Um, or other, or sometimes they're just trying to be honest and say, I don't believe there's a God. But this is a very, very small number of people actually believe this in history and even today. Even though it may seem like it's very popular, it's actually very, very uncommon for someone to truly be an atheist. Uh, more common, but still more less common than, than being religious, is the belief that I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's a God. And that's the, the system called agnosticism. I don't know. I, I don't think you can really know for sure. Yeah, there might be a God, but how would, how would you really know? Like people say, oh, there's miracles and there's this and that, but oh, isn't that, couldn't that just be a coincidence? This is called agnosticism. I don't know if there's a God. I can't be sure if there's a God. They say, maybe, but, but I just, 
I can't say, I can't say for sure. Again, very much a small number of people in history and today uh, hold this position, although some people do. Another way people who do believe in God would answer would say, yes, there is a God. And what they would say is everything is God. Everything is God. This is a belief called pantheism, that everything is God. This is the Pocahontas religious system, right? Every rock, every tree, every creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name, right? It sounds good in the song, but, but it's, this is pantheism. Everything is God. This is very common in Eastern religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, but, and also very common um, is in some spheres in, in our uh, society today where people believe that everything is God. There's sort, of no, there's sort of no difference between God and the world and that sort of thing. Another way to people who believe in God, they, they'd say, yes, there are many gods. There are many gods. This is the belief called polytheism, many gods. This is very common in the ancient world where people would say, oh, there's a sun god and a moon god. There's a, you know, a, a fertility god and, and all sorts of things. People, a lot, there's a lot of polytheists today. Their, their gods just look different. Their, their gods look like houses and cars and, and gadgets and those sorts of things. There are many gods, polytheism. Then there is the, this last one, and that's the one probably we think of most often, and that is there is one God. There is one God. Monotheism. There's only one God. There's only one true and living God, and, um, and that's it. There is a God, and there's one of them. And this is like Muslim, Islam believes in this. Judaism believes in this. Christianity believes in this, but Christianity teaches something that's different from every other religious system in 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 the world, whether it's atheism or agnosticism or pantheism or polytheism or even just monotheism. Now, as, as a group, when we gather together, there, there might be all sorts of different people in the room. Like we talk about the fact that there, there can be old people and young people. Uh, there's people in this room from, from their, in their sevens, like seven years and seven months to maybe 77 years or, or so. Uh, there's people who have dark skin and people who have light skin. There's people with, you know, PhD versus, versus GED. There's Republicans or Democrats. There's um, people who believe all sorts of different things. When we gather together, we need to be aware there could be people who are atheists or agnostic or pantheist or polytheist or just sort of like generic monotheist. And wherever we are, wherever you might be, uh, on the spectrum, whether you're firmly convinced there's a God and you're like all in, like you're a God person, or whether you're not really sure about that, um, what, wherever you kind of are in life and on that spectrum, I want to invite you to look at the belief that Christianity teaches about who God is, because it is totally unique. Among all of these options, Christian Christianity, what I call Christian Godology, the teaching of Christianity about who God is, is different than any other religious system that has ever existed. Because what Christians believe, what Christianity believes, is that there are three persons in one God. There are three persons in one God. My kids probably could sing you a song. I'm, I'm actually going to have them both come up here. No, they're not going to come up here. There's, a, there's, an, there's an app it's called the 
New City Catechism. It's free on the, on the App Store. It's amazing. And it, it, it's 52 question and answers about what Christians believe. And the kids' version has a little song. So it says, um, how many persons are there in God? This is one of the questions. And the song goes, there are three persons in one God, the Father. Anyway, so if you're a parent looking to disciple your kids, it's a really great tool. We listen. We listen to those songs on the way to school. Uh, We do one. There's 52 questions. We do one question a week, um, and we just listen to it, you know, over and over on the way to school. Uh, One one question every week we listen to over and over, um, and uh, we're having a a little situation. You You all right? We okay? Okay, good. Um, and so anyway, that's just a side note. There are three persons in one God. This is the Christian teaching that is totally unique among all religious systems. This means that Christianity is different than monotheism like Judaism or Islam. It, it's different than polytheism, that, that there, there's something happening in what God reveals about himself in the Bible that Christianity teaches that makes it unique among every belief system that has ever existed. So who is the God of the gospel? That's the question we're going to answer. Who is the God of the gospel? Um, I think, do we, is that the next slide there? The God of the gospel. Well, here, here's the thing. At the heart of life is, is God himself who is both one and three at the same time. At the heart of life is not like a primordial ooze that, you know, just kind of like gradually changed into what we see today. At the heart of life is not an arbitrary algorithm. At the heart of life is not a a multitude of gods kind of like fighting it out. At the heart of life is not just At the heart of life is a God who is purposeful, happy, and fully love in and of himself. And this makes Christianity different than every religious system that has ever existed. On the book table, we have a number of resources. One of them is a book called Delighting in the Trinity. And uh, this is a great, great, it's a little book, but it is, I mean, it's jam-packed. Like, it'll blow your mind. Um... It is one of the best books I've ever read, one of the best Christian books I've ever read. It is just really, really good. And in this book, the author, Michael Reeves, says this, Underneath everything, there is not just, quote-unquote, God, but the Father eternally loving His Son. At bottom, there is the Father, and that means a lively God of love, a God who is no envious, hoarding miser, but who delights to give out life, and being to his son, and having such a God happily changes everything. When we believe that in the Trinity, it changes everything about life and what we believe about God himself, because it means if people believe anything about God, they believe that God is love, and God can only be love if God is a Trinity. And we, we know God is a Trinity because he revealed himself in the gospel as a trinity. And there are two verses I want you to look at, and then we're going to go um, into the Old Testament, but Matthew 28, 19. 
So if we pull up Matthew 28, 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now here's what you need to realize. There is one name, singular, but the name is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there are three names, but there's only one name. So there is one name, one character, one God, one being, but there are three persons. There are three persons named as part of this one name. So how does that work? Well, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the Christian teaching of the Trinity, that there is one God and there are three persons in one God. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, another important verse is 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. There are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him and we exist through Him. Now what you have to understand is that in the Old Testament, God and Lord were synonymous. It was meant the same thing. God and Lord meant the same person. It meant the one true and living God. But yet we can say God, there is God the Father, and then there is the Lord, Jesus Christ. So God the Father and Jesus Christ, or God the Son, are one, yet somehow differentiated from one another. As we look in the New Testament, we see that God is a trinity. God is one God, three persons in one God. And then when we know this, what we can do is we can look back through the whole Bible, we can look to the Old Testament, and we can see that this is really everywhere. I don't know if you ever have, have seen the FedEx logo. Have you ever seen the FedEx logo? Yes, you've seen. And, and so you're giving it away here, kids, all right? So um, you've probably seen this, but if you go to the next slide, I had not seen this for like my whole life. I, I've seen the FedEx, the FedEx logo, and someone pointed out the arrow to me. The story goes that they were, in a, they were in a meeting pitching this logo this designer had made, and the CEO of FedEx immediately said, yes, this is the one I want, because he saw the arrow. Now, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy, I'm, most pers- you know, I'm not the most you know, uh, <laughs> aware of what's ha- perceptive, like what's going on, and so it was a long time someone pointed out, oh, there's an arrow there. But once you see it, you can't never unsee it. And, and, the, and the Trinity in the Old Testament is a little bit like this. Once you know that God is a Trinity, you start to see shadows and hints of it all over the place. So what I want to do for a few minutes is talk about the way the Trinity shows up in the Old Testament. And it's a little bit like when I watch Giants games on the internet. And it's um, because um, when, when you start the game and, and the, the feed gets going, sometimes it starts out blurry because the internet speed's sort of catching up and the live stream and all that. And then as time goes along, it starts to get clearer and clearer and clearer until it's almost like full HD. Well, that's sort of what's happening in the Old Testament. The story and, and the feed starts out, you can see it, but it's sort of blurry. You can't quite tell. But then when you see what the New Testament teaches, you go back and you're like, oh, that's definitely there, and that's definitely, God is definitely starting to hint about who he is in the Old Testament. So the first thing we need to know is there is only one God. There is only one God. 
Deuteronomy 6.4. This is the heart of the Hebrew Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. I think we have this on a slide too. Uh, Hear, O Israel. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, so the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, Jew, Judaism is hardcore monotheistic. There is only one God. And Christians are hardcore monotheistic. But we believe monotheism in a way that is fuller and ro- more robust and more mysterious than, than other monotheistic systems of belief. So we have to understand there's only one God. This is non-negotiable. This is non-negotiable. There's only one God. Which makes what I'm about to tell you all the more amazing. So for example, the Old Testament hints at plurality in God. Plurality means more than one. So there are hints that somehow God is one, but how is there like multiple, there seems like God, but, but there's like this, this somehow more than one. Like how does that work? So here, for example, the name of a title of God in the Old Testament, Elohim, um, you may not realize when you read the word God in the Old Testament or God in the, is not so much a name as it is a title. It's like we call the president the president. That's not his name, that's his title. Or call you know me the pastor. That's not my name, that's my title. Now someone may say, hey pastor or Mr. President, but that's not a name, that's a title. Well, God is actually a title for the name of the God, Yahweh. Anyway, the name, or excuse me, the title of God, Elohim, which is very, Genesis 1-1, right there in the beginning, is actually a plural word. It can literally be translated gods. Now, we know there's only one God, uh, and the way often this was um, interpreted by rabbis and, and Jewish leaders was to say this is a majestic plural, that God is so powerful and so majestic that they use a plural word to talk about him. But when we see it in light of the teaching of the New Testament that there is a trinity, and the gospel teaches us that there's a trinity, we see, oh, that's what's going on. Next thing is the Old Testament talks about God and God, and, or Lord and Lord. So we're gonna, I'm going to go through a few verses here. Kids, everyone, eyes on the screen. You're going to want to see this. Okay, this is the story. Remember when the, there's three strangers who show up to Abraham in Genesis 18. And one of the things, one, what's that? Angels, yeah. Um, and so they tell him that they're going to destroy the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abram's nephew, Lot, lives there. And so he tries, he says, Lord, will you not save them for the sake of 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 20 righteous, 10 righteous? And, and then eventually... Uh, they say there's not enough, there's like no righteous people in all of the city, and so we're going to wipe it out. We're going to destroy it in judgment because it's so wicked. And um, the angels come to, and in in mercy, in God's mercy, they're going to save Abram's nephew, Lot. And so they get to him, and they, um, they take them out of the house, and it says the angels got them outside, and they said, run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now look what Lot says to them. Now what you have to realize and what you may not know is there are two angels here. Two angels. 
But he says, know my Lord, one. So there's two angels, but he addresses them as one Lord. St. Augustine said this was a pre-New uh, Testament manifestation of the Holy Spirit and God the Son in these two angels appearing to Lot. That there is two, there's two angels of the Lord, but there's only one Lord. How does that work? Notice uh, just a couple verses later in verse 24. Out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. So how does the Lord, it seems, it seems redundant, right? The Lord rained sulfur from the Lord. It's like saying, um, Danny, you know, preached a sermon from, Dan, you know, from Danny. Like, it doesn't, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, why is it redundant? Like, why would you say that? Well, maybe it's because the Lord is executing judgment from the Lord. In other words, Christ, perhaps, is executing judgment on behalf of the Father upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at this one in Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's addressing God. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. But he's saying, God, your God. So there's God, and then there's God's God. How does that work? How can God have a God? Well, maybe it's because God is more than just one in one. Maybe he's three in one. Look at this next one in Psalm 110, verse 1. The declaration of the Lord to my Lord. This is David, the greatest king of Israel. There was no one on earth more important than David who had lordship over David. The only one David would have called Lord is God. But he says, this is the Lord's declaration to my Lord. So somehow David's Lord has a Lord. David's God has a God. How does that work? Well, that no one could get their minds around it. It's like, what does that make sense? The picture was blurry, but when we get into the Gospels and we get into the New Testament, we see, oh, it's the Trinity. The Trinity is there. One more in Hosea 1.7. I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the... So this is God speaking. I will have com compassion and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. What's that talking about? It's talking about God the Father saving through God the Son. It's the Trinity in Hosea 1.7, 700 years before Christ. So the Old Testament hints at this. Uh, another thing the Old Testament does is it uses threefold patterns. The, 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 the big word is triadic, a triad triadic or threefold patterns to talk about God's actions, that Yahweh equals God times the word times the spirit. In the New Testament, John 1 explains that God, the son, Jesus Christ is called the logos or the word of God. Look at this in this next verse in Genesis 1. For the very beginning of the first verse of the Bible, the Trinity is here. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said the word, let there be light, and there was light. And we read John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's the Trinity. The first three verses of the Bible talk about all three persons of the Trinity. When you understand, and it's clear, and you see the arrow in the FedEx logo, you can never unsee it. It's everywhere. Here's another one, Psalm 33, verse 6. 
the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath or the spirit of his mouth. So in creation, God is working as a trinity to accomplish his purposes. Haggai 2.5, we just went through Haggai in uh, June. In this verse, we remember seeing, this is the promise or the word I, God, made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. So there we see both in creation and in redemption, the exodus, the Trinity is at work. The Trinity is everywhere in the Old Testament because the Trinity is the one true and living God. God always has been, always will be triune. One God, three persons. Another, another hint of this is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord does things only God can do. Look at this, uh, this next verse. Judges 2, 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said I will never break my covenant with you. How can the angel of the Lord say, that, say this? He's making promises that only God can make. Not just on God's behalf, but as somehow as God himself. Look at this next verse. Remember when uh, Abram and Sarah had this amazing, brilliant strategy. This is our, these are our human strategies to accomplish God's purposes. <gasps> Sarah says, you can take my maid, Hagar, and you can have a kid with her, but she'll be like legal, he'll be like legally my kid, and then that'll be the way God you know, gets his work done. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just manufacture God's answer to our prayers, and God's, we'll, we'll manufacture God's word of his promise, and we know how well that goes. <laughs> Hagar has a baby, but Sarah is very mean and hateful and cast them away, makes Abram send them away. And uh, Abram replied to Sarah, here is your slave, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Now look what it says, the angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness on the way to Shur. That eight is not a secret Bible code, that's just the verse number I forgot to delete. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away. From my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said, Now look, this is, I will greatly multiply your offspring. They will be too many to count. The, the angel of the Lord said to her, you, will, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. The, Lord prom, the angel of the Lord promises to do things only God can do. We see this again. Um, in Genesis 22, 11 and 12, the, the angel of the Lord is called God. The angel of the Lord called to Abram after he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. He says, here I am. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you fear God. So the angel speaking on behalf of God, and you have not withheld your only son from me. So the angel of the Lord is actually called God here. Look at this next one. Exodus 3, 1 through 6. The angel of the Lord, here about three lines down, four lines down, appeared to Moses in the flame of the bush. The Moses, you know, the bush, not the Moses is not burning. The bush is burning, and Moses sees the burning bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, look, he says, the Lord saw. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him 
And God called to him from the bush, and he says, do not come closer, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So the angel of the Lord is God. He is called God. The angel is also distinguished from God. We're going to uh, skip over some of uh, these verses for the sake of time. Let's go, go to uh, the next point, indications of multiple defined persons. So there's these places where God seems to have someone else with him who is equal to him. One of these is in Proverbs 8, when it's wisdom, the personification of wisdom. The Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation. Before his works of long ago, I was formed before ancient times. From the beginning, before the earth began, I was born. When there were no watery depths and no springs filled with water, before the mountains were established, prior to the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the land, the field, the first soil on earth, I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above and the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command, when he laid out the foundation of the earth. I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world and in the children of Adam. Say, okay, that's okay, whatever. But then you read in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Christ is the wisdom of God. This is Jesus talking. Last one, God's Son. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. How can God have a son? But here it is. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him, given dominion, glory and a kingdom so that every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So here we see, all throughout the Old Testament, God is showing who he truly is. It's not crystal clear, but once you see, it's everywhere. Once you see that God is a trinity, it's everywhere, even in the Old Testament. God is telling a story that is consistent from beginning to end. So let me ask you this. How does this connect to your life? How does this connect to your life? What does this mean for you? Let me take you back to my 10th grade English class with Mr. Barton. Now, I know, kids, 10th grade seems like a long time from now for you. But when you're old like me, 10th grade was a long, long time ago. 10th grade English class, class with Mr. Barton. He taught us how to write short stories. And he taught us a principle of storytelling called foreshadowing where you kind of hint about the end before, you know, in the early parts of the story. And I wrote this story that I was super proud of, and I thought it was really, really good. And it had a surprise plot twist at the end. I actually looked for it. I can't find it anywhere in my files on my computer. I, must, I don't know what happened to it. I don't even remember, actually, the whole storyline. In retrospect, it was probably pretty mediocre. But Mr. Barton graded this story, and he said, actually, he said, this is a really good story. And our school had this little, like, literary, like, journal they would publish once a year. 
And he says, I bet it could be published in there, but you need to add something. He says, you need to add an element of foreshadowing. You need to give a hint at the beginning about what's going to happen at the end. That doesn't give it away in the beginning, but when you know the ending, you're like, oh my gosh, this has been there the whole time. And you want to know something? God is the best storyteller in the history of existence. And he's telling a story, and he was foreshadowing and giving a clue about the full reality of who he was from the very first verses of the Bible. Because he always has been, always is, always will be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for you? Well, the first thing it means for you is that you can know God, you can love God, you can trust God, and you can follow God. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he has been telling the same story about the world and about himself from the very beginning. That, the, that, that he is who he says he is. Christ is who he says he is. He will never let... It, you know, anyone know what a rickroll is? Where, anyone know what a rickroll is? A rickroll is where you, set, you, you give a link on the internet that you send someone to, and it sends them to the YouTube video for Rick Astley's song, Never Gonna Give You Up, Never Gonna Let You Down. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down. God, God is the ultimate rickroll, because, but he, his, the thing with him is it is absolutely true. He will never give you up. He will never let you down. He will never go around or desert you. God will never fail you. And part of the way we know that is because he's been telling the same story about himself from the very beginning. The second thing is you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. The Bible is consistent. My gosh, Genesis 1.1 has the Trinity in it. Not to mention Genesis 1.26 and 27, let us make man in our image. The, all the beginning of the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, God has been showing who he is. At first, a little more blurry, and as the time went along, more and more clearly, till we see the fullness of his divine nature in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As God the Father sends God the Son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be buried and raised from the dead, so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him will be forgiven of their sin and given eternal life. And then he sends God the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. The Son ascends to heaven and he sends God the Holy Spirit. And in this happening, in this gospel story, God is telling us that he is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal communion of love. One God, three persons. It's all in the Bible. And then that means, thirdly, you can trust God to write your story. If God is writing this story consistently and unfailingly in the Bible then you can trust him to write your own story. You can trust him with the chapters in your life that don't seem to make sense. You can trust him with plot twists you didn't expect or really even want. You can trust him. You can trust him because he's telling a consistent story and he's working toward a consistent purpose. And he's doing the same thing in your life and in your story. So the question is, will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that 
you eternally have been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you have been telling us that from the very beginning. In shadows, in a blurry form early on, and now in HD, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we worship you, may we trust you, may we love you, and may we follow you. Lord, for anyone here who has never turned from their sin, the bad news of their sin, that they have fallen short of the glory of God, and that their destiny is not a bright one in their sin, but that because of your love, because you are love, because you are a trinity, that in your son Jesus Christ, you have provided a way for them to be forgiven of their sin and given new life. For anyone who's not done that, Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to turn from their sin and to trust in you and the good news of Christ. For those who have done that, may they do that again and trust you again and be renewed in their trust. Whatever the season, whatever the chapter, whatever you're, that, that you are writing a story that's going to have a good ending because it's your story. And they're a character in your story. And so we just love you and we praise you and we want to say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.